most were the pre-captivity as they were leading up to the captivity. Now, we also know that the book of Jeremiah, the collected prophecies, are not in chronological order necessarily. Um, I guess you would say they're more in theme order. And so a lot of Jeremiah, a lot of what we've studied so far has been Jeremiah telling them about their sins and the punishment, the exile that's coming. And you've done a lot of that, and that has not gotten a very good reaction. People haven't liked hearing those things. But it's also true that Jeremiah looks beyond the punishment to the blessings that would be coming after the exile. God has given messages to the prophets that are balanced messages. And God doesn't just leave his people with a message of punishment. He also gives them hope. The idea of the punishment was to purge out the wicked so that God could bless them. So the last three chapters we've looked at in Jeremiah, chapter 30, 31, and 32, have been much more positive. Not totally positive, but they've much more talked about the blessings that would come after the captivity, the blessings that would come in Christ. That's also true here in chapter 33. Though he's going to talk about the sinful present and the judgment that's coming, he's more going to focus on the blessings after that judgment. And so that's really kind of the emphasis more in this chapter. And why don't we read a little bit and we'll see how that works. So chapter 33, would somebody read 1 to 13? Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time, while he was still confined in the court of the guards, saying, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you the great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city, and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege ramps, and against the sword. While they are coming to fight with the Chaldeans, to fill them with their corpses of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath, and I have hidden my face from the city because of all the wickedness, behold, I will bring it to health and healing. I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me, and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to, it will be to me a name of joy, of praise and glory before all of the nations of the earth, which will hear all the good that I do for them, and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Thus says the Lord, Yet again there will be heard in this place of which you say is a waste without man and without beast, that is, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem they are, that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant and without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And of those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they will again be in this place which 
is waste, without man or beast in all his cities, a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks. And the cities of the hill country, and the cities of the lowland, and the cities of the Negev, and the land of Benjamin, and the environs of Jerusalem, and the cities of Judah, the flocks will again pass under the hands of the ones who numbers them, says the Lord. Alright, so we know this is pre-captivity, because Jeremiah is uh, incarcerated in the uh, guard house. And uh, the Lord tells both about the immediate future, but mostly about the farther future. Now, in the immediate future, things are not good. Um, it's, it's amazing how foolish people are when they try to withstand God's judgments. God was bringing the Babylonians against Jerusalem, and in verse 4, what was Jerusalem doing? Something that doesn't strike you as very bright. They're tearing down their houses. <laughs> Why? Using those as a defense against the enemies that are building the siege wall against the city. So like using the material in the houses to fortify the wall. Well, that, that you, you need a strong wall to guard against the Babylonians, but you're kind of hurting yourselves when you tear down your houses to do it. Now you don't have a place to live, just trying to fortify the city. And that's the way often we respond to God's punishments, is by doing something self-destructive to try to protect ourselves. That was not the best thing. God says, actually, they're gonna, these houses are going to be filled with men's corpses. The, all the dead... Uh, that from the the victims of war, you know, there's going to be a bunch of dead bodies uh, in these in these places. So the immediate future is bleak. You know, they're actually tearing down their houses to fortify the wall, and really, God says they're all going to be filled up with a bunch of dead bodies. So it's not looking good. But it's it's actually often in the darkest hour that God brings hope and blessing. Because suddenly he reverses himself in verse 6 and he looks beyond that upcoming judgment to the blessings that will happen later. And this blessing section, you can look back in Jeremiah and almost every detail of the blessing is an exact reversal of a statement of punishment. God is going to completely invert, transform the punishment into blessing. So for example in verse 6, what's God going to give them? Health and healing. Health and healing. Now, what had God given them in the punishment? Well, God had given them uh, sickness and wounds in chapter 6 and verse 7. In chapter 8 and verse 22, uh, you know, he asked, isn't there, a, isn't there a doctor to heal the sickness and the wounds of the people? And, of course, the false prophets, they were trying to, to heal in 8.11, they healed the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. So, God depicted the judgment as sickness and wounds. He depicted the false prophets as putting a band-aid on the cancer. They didn't really help. But God was the true healer that after the punishment, he says, I will bring it to health and healing, and I will heal them. So you could do that with every one of these figures nearly. When he's talking about the blessings that are coming, you can see it's the reverse of the, the, the punishment threats. Um, 
he says, I'll restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. Well, what was the destruction? What was the punishment? It was the, the destroying, the dismantling. Now he rebuilds. In verse 8, he cleanses them from their sins and pardons their iniquities. Now, you might think about what kinds of sins had he talked about that were in the nation? What all were some of the sins that he has exposed? That was idolatry. A lot of idolatry. You know, worshipping the Queen of Heaven, to worshipping the Baals, to worshipping whatever gods come along, and that is an outrageous sin. You think about other sins. What other sins does he talk about a lot in Jeremiah? Hard to synthesize and think about all those things, isn't it? Violence and oppression and taking advantage of the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. That's a big one. You know, disrespect for God, taking his name in vain, false oaths, and so forth and so on. What did they what did they do over and over again to Jeremiah and people like them? Well, other prophets of God they'd killed even. Remember uh, Uriah back in chapter 26? And uh, they deposed Jeremiah, attacked him, plotted against him, imprisoned him, tortured him. You know, you just go on and on, thinking about all, all the sins he condemns him for. That makes verse 8 stand out more. You know, forgiveness is greater when you realize how terrible the sin is. When you think about all the sins they committed, and God is saying, I'll forgive you for those, I'm going to cleanse you, I'm going to pardon these iniquities, it means more. You know, God is a God who's able to cleanse, you know, horribly defiled, stained sinners. He's able to take people who have done things very offensive, committed abominations against him, and wipe the slate clean and give them a new start. That is an amazing blessing that God is offering these people. You know, that, that's wow. That, that's remarkable. And uh, look at verse 9. What's he going to do for the people in this blessing period? What's he saying in verse 9? There'll be peace. There'll be peace. And make a name of joy, praise, and glory. So what's that say? They'll come back and be God's people again and everything will be good. Everything will be good and... The other nations around them will recognize it. Or... Exactly. You know, now think about in the judgment passages. The pe- their name would be a reproach and a mockery. And the other nations would say, well, you know, ha ha ha, what happened to them? And things like that. And now they end up with a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations. And actually, their <laughs> life and their restoration... 
becomes an uh, evangelistic tool. The other nations see what God's doing for them and are attracted. Instead of being repulsed, oh wow, these these people have abandoned their God, that's why all this has happened, now they're going to be an advertisement for the Lord. So again, step by step, it's the reversal of the judgment. You know, he says before in verse 10, it was just a wasteland, desolate, nobody. And you see that several times in uh, earlier in Jeremiah, where uh, you know the lights are going out, no sound would be heard, the silencing of Jerusalem. Now it comes back to life again. You know, the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. You know, now it's hustling and bustling and and exciting uh, celebration. Um, it, it won't be a waste place without inhabitant now. You know, it'll be a place of uh, flocks and herds and shepherds and things like that. So God is just all throughout this putting his his name on the promise that I'm going to undo all the stuff I did in judging you. Comments and questions on all that? Where was one of those verses about them the nations around seeing them as a uh, disgusting thing, an important thing. That is a very good question because I don't have that one written down, so I don't know. Right. You have to find it. There are some, but I can't tell you. Anybody know? Other questions or comments? This is something really important for us to remember because there's always, like. God's punishment always has a reason, and after his reason is finished, then everything goes back to good, because God loves us, and he doesn't punish us for the fun of it. He punishes us for a reason. And his real goal in punishment is so that we can be purged and cleansed, because he wants to be able to bless us and forgive us and take us back. You're exactly right. God is amazing, even in his punishment, in that he wants that to be redemptive also. He, his whole goal is to receive us. Now, some people absolutely refuse to let him accomplish that purpose, but that's what he's trying for. Is, who could ever imagine a God who's so loving? I, I might just, I think I can tell this concisely, but I thought this was very, uh, very helpful. When I was in Brazil, um, it was very encouraging in one of the places where I was. There's a man that I have known personally for about 15 years. He's a Christian, but he has been open with me, and for probably 10 years, at least, he's been living very much a double life. He struggled with sexual sin, he struggled with a gambling addiction, and, you know, things like that. I didn't know this, but for several years he hid an affair with a woman who had a man that was she considered to be her husband. They weren't really married, but they'd lived together for years. And he's, all the while he's married to this Christian woman, he's having this affair, has a child by this person, and so forth. And hid it. And finally, after you know some long time, his wife figured it out and blew the whistle on him. And, and one thing led to another, and he decided to choose the mistress over the Lord. 
And while I was there, he came back to the Lord. And we talked a good bit. And um, I knew, knew him well. He'd, he'd been open with me at times in the past. And, uh, you know, he said, you know, he just thought about his life. He's 50 years old. Thought about his life and said he just cannot believe the Lord is still willing to forgive him and take him back. He said, how could anybody be so foolish as to reject a love that is that great? Now, that's what he was doing. Thank God he's changed that. But that's exactly right. When you think about how could God be so loving as to take back somebody who's been living a stupid, hypocritical life for years, and this guy knows the Bible really well. It wasn't like he didn't know. And that's what God wants to do with you and with me. He wants us back. That's what he wants. He wants to be close to us. He keeps offering us forgiveness and hope and salvation and comfort and joy. He's trying to win us back. Now, who would do that? You marry a woman, she starts running around on you, running around on you, running around on you. Are you going to speak lovingly and tenderly to her, trying to get her to come back to you after she's betrayed you and stuck the knife in your back over and over again? God doesn't just take us back when we get on our knees and beg and plead. And No, he's actively out there trying to persuade us to want to come back to him. So his, his, you know, restoration and his zeal to be reconciled to us is incredible. Thoughts and comments? Well, not only is he going to restore the people, but one of the key aspects of the nation was the leadership. God is going to restore the leadership for his people also. 14 to 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Then I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will cause the righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judas will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And then this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings to burn grain offerings and prepare sacrifice continually. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, if you if you can break my covenant for the day and my my covenant for the night, so the day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not, not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the political priest my ministers as the hosts of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying 
Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord chose, he also rejected them? Thus they despise my, pe my people. No longer are they as a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for the day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not, not taking from the descendants ruler, rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will restore the fortunes, and I will have mercy on them. Okay, <laughs> so... God is looking to the future, and he says in 15, In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. Who was David? King. He, was, he had been the king. What kind of king was he? He was a good king, he was a good king overall. And what was the most special thing about the life of David? He was a man after God's own heart. He was that, so I'll grant you that. What was another special thing? His house was to serve Israel as king forever. How did we know that? Yeah, who said? God. Through who? <laughs> who is the prophet who told David about that? Nathan. Nathan. You remember how David told Nathan, I want to build God a house. Nathan said, sure, and then God comes to him that night and says, no. <laughs> and what God says to Nathan is, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And by that he meant a continuing lineage dynasty of kings. He said that he would establish an eternal throne, an eternal kingship through David. So that's what he's going back to here. He said, I'll cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. When you think of a branch, what do you think of? What has branches? Trees. Trees. Now think about what God did with the tree of Israel. If you think of Israel as being a tree, and a lot of passages do use tree for nations or for prominent people or whatever. If Israel was a tree, what did God do to Israel in the captivity? He chopped her down. But thankfully he left the stump. And what happens if you cut a tree down but you leave the stump? Sometimes. It'll grow back. Sometimes it'll grow back. That's the idea. You've got this new shoot coming up out of that trunk. And so he calls this the righteous branch of David is going to spring forth. And it gives new life, new hope for the tree to thrive and prosper again. Now, when he speaks, he speaks about this righteous branch of David, who's he thinking about? Jesus. He's the one who sprang forth from the David stump, and he was going to be this eternal king who was going to reign over the house of David forever. In fact, he says what he will, the kind of the, the, the king, the kingship principles. 
by which this branch would reign. He's called the righteous branch and he executes justice and righteousness on the earth. He is absolutely a king of justice and truth. He does everything right. Was that true of all the other kings in Judah and David's lineage? Were they always righteous? No, they really weren't. In fact, they got worse and worse. Some of them were abysmal. <laughs> but here's the righteous branch that restores that ideal. He's going to provide safety and peace, and he's going to be the righteousness for his people. And uh, so he says in 17, David will never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So how is David never going to lack a man to sit on the throne? What is that saying? What's he really saying in that? He will always have descendants. Yes, and so what is the fulfillment of that? Jesus. Jesus. See, because how often does Jesus leave a vacancy on the throne? Never. He never lacks a man to sit on the throne because Jesus is going to stay on the throne reigning and ruling forever. Now, you know, if, if, if I said, um, you know, um, the, uh, some, some uh, royal family will always occupy the throne of England. Well, I'm saying there will always be sons and grandsons and great-grandsons that would occupy the throne. But in this case, Jesus is the one. He just does it forever. He doesn't have to have a son that comes along to take over for him when he dies. So Jesus is going to be the constant king. But he also says in verse 18, And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. All right, now you remember the Levitical priests, right? Who was the granddaddy of the priests? Aaron. And it was Aaron and his descendants that would be the priests. So is this saying that Aaron's descendants would always be priests for God's people? What is this saying? Oh, that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Not just the ultimate sacrifice, but the ultimate priest himself. But now wait a minute. If this is talking about Jesus, was Jesus a Levitical priest? He's better. He was. But he wasn't Levitical, was he? What was he? He was Judical. <laughs> it was from Judah. He wasn't from Levi. And so, this says, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me. Furthermore, it says to offer burnt offerings and to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. Now, does Jesus offer burnt offerings and burn grain offerings and prepare sacrifices continually? As far as we know, Jesus never offered a grain offering in his life as far as being the priest to burn the grain offering. And surely Jesus doesn't keep offering grain offerings today, does he? So, 
when we actually look at verse 18, how could that be Jesus? Do you see the... Jesus wasn't from Levi. And he doesn't do this stuff. It must not be Jesus. <laughs> you know, that's what a lot of people determine. That is the conclusion that a lot of people come to. They don't think this could be Jesus. I think it is. But this causes you to scratch your head a while. And I'm kind of using this to help us understand prophecies a little better. Because when you look at this, you can see why somebody would make an argument this couldn't be Jesus. And yet, well, who else is it if it's not Jesus? You know, Do you know any Levitical priests today who are offering burnt offerings and grain offerings and offering sacrifices and so forth? No. Even the Jews today don't offer any sacrifices because they don't even have the temple. So they couldn't offer sacrifice. So this is describing what is going to happen with Jesus in terms they could relate to as Jews. If you, 500 years ago, were to describe the coming of the airplane, can you imagine? <clears throat> now, boys and girls, in 500 years, there's going to be airplanes! There's going to be air what? Airplanes! They're going to have turbine engines. I don't know what they have. Uh... You know, and ailerons, and they'll have that on a plane, and I don't know what all they have on a plane, a cockpit, and uh, do you think that'd mean much to people 500 years ago? That wouldn't mean a thing. So if you were trying to, to predict the coming of the airplane 500 years ago, what would you say? People will ride inside of giant birds. Yeah, there's going to be these carrier birds. <laughs> They're going to carry people really fast from one place to... Well, are they birds? Well, no. But what are you going to say? If you're trying to communicate, you have to describe the future in terms that people can relate to. So, Jesus serves the function of Levitical priests. In that, he has provided definitive sacrifices that last forever. Jesus is the one who is constantly providing atonement through one sacrifice for all time, believe it or not. But he is the one who provides the constant atonement. Does that make sense? I think Hebrews is a good book to reference in this. It is. Because what does Hebrews show you? That Jesus is the high priest, the eternal <coughs> high priest, the eternal sacrifice for once for all. And Hebrews uses what passage to show that? Remember the passage of the Hebrews keeps working over on the priesthood? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you know where that came from? Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Now, do we have a Levitical priest forever and a Melchizedek priest forever? Is this saying there's going to be two lines of priests forever? Yeah. Now, that's not going to work very well, is it? 
you know, we don't have rival priesthoods. So when it talks about having being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, he's really talking about the same thing he's talking about here, having the Levitical priest that's always serving as priest offering sacrifices. It's just another way of describing the continual atonement and intercession and mediatorship of Jesus in terms they could make sense of in their day. There's always going to be that priestly function occupied. Does that make sense? Thoughts and comments about that. that that's a challenging passage, but there's no other explanation that is worth anything. So once you see the correct explanation, then this helps you with other passages where you say, wait a minute, this isn't really true in Jesus. Well, yes, it is. It's just described in terms that we can understand. We, we good on that? Yes. The order now, Kesedek, that's fuzzy to me. Can you explain all of that? I can. Um, before the law, when there was just Abraham, Abraham met a king priest as he was coming back from rescuing his nephew Lot. Thank you. And uh, and actually Melchizedek, this king priest, blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tithe. But but Melchizedek, like he just appears on the scene, <laughs> you know, poof. And then he's gone. You never see Melchizedek coming into priesthood. You never see him leaving the priesthood. The only time you ever see him, he's serving as priest. And Abraham recognized his superiority. The next time you read about Melchizedek is in Psalm 110, talking about the Messiah that's sitting on the throne, saying to the Messiah, you're going to be a priest like Melchizedek was. And Hebrews picks up on that and says, Jesus was a Melchizedek kind of priest. And he points out that... Melchizedek, as far as the scripture record is concerned, was always a priest. I mean, like the only time we ever see him, he's a priest. We never see him being born, we never see him dying, we never see him coming into priesthood or leaving the priesthood. The way the record paints him, only time we ever see him, he is priest. Well, Jesus is priest in the true sense. The word Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Melchizedek was actually the king of Salem, and Salem means peace, so he's king of righteousness, king of peace, so is Jesus. He was king and priest, so is Jesus. And so Jesus was actually a priest in, in the Melchizedek tradition, not in the Levi, actually. Jesus wasn't even from the tribe of Levi, so he couldn't have been literally a living priest. And then what Hebrews does is to say that since Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, he blessed Abraham. Abraham gave ties to him. Abraham's great-grandson was Levi. Levi was in Abraham's genes whenever Abraham honored Melchizedek. Therefore, if Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, he's really greater than Levi. Therefore, the Melchizedek priesthood, of which Jesus is a part, is greater than the Levi priesthood. Does that make some sense? Yeah. So that's a cool point in Hebrews kind of complex. And so, what he's saying here to the people is, in, in the blessings God's going to bring them, they're going to always have a king. That is, always have righteous leadership. 
righteous guidance, righteous government, and they're always going to have the priesthood fulfilling its function. That is, we're always going to have intercession, mediatorship, the ability to come to God through an intermediary, which is Jesus. So the function of kingship and priesthood is always going to be fulfilled, but we know this is actually through Jesus. That's pretty deep stuff. Do you have some thoughts and comments through 18? When 3318, Jeremiah. Now, he says, you know this is going to be absolutely true. This is as sure as God's covenant with the day and the night. You know, like his covenant that the sun's going to come up in the morning and it's going to set in the evening. How sure is that? Definite. It's worked pretty reliably for a long time. If you ever see the sun coming up in the west, then maybe God could break this agreement. But as long as the sun comes up in the east and sets in the west, you can count on this one. That is a pretty sure promise. You know, that, that's basing it on something. He says, as the host of heaven cannot be counted... And the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply. Can you count the sands on the sea? Can you count the stars in the sky? Well, they are as as uncountable as God breaking his promise. You know, if you can count them, then maybe God can go back on his word. Otherwise, you got a sure bet. You got a sure promise. So God is saying, I will give eternal leadership and eternal mediatorship to his people. You can trust me. You can count on it. Now the people were saying, verse 23, he's rejected us. You know, we're worthless. God doesn't love us anymore and all that. And look at verse 25. If my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David, etc. They say, God's rejected us. He said, right, I'm as likely to, to just totally, you know, wreck the cosmos as I am to reject you. You know, I mean, things just sort of happen always regular in the sky, So God is going to fulfill his promise. That's the measure of confidence and certainty we can have that God is going to have kingship and priesthood for his people. Nature's going to collapse before God's going to go back on his word on that one. So he's telling these people who are about to go into exile, don't you worry, there will be a continuing priesthood and kingship for his people. That's chapter 33. That's kind of heavy, but it's also cool. Comments and questions? I think it's amazing that God can say that. I mean, that's something that we as humans can like barely even understand, that he is so consistent that he can swear by nature that it will happen. There is no chance it won't happen. And that's something that's so hard for us to even comprehend. Yeah, we are not 
powerful enough to always know if we can even do something, well, what's strong enough to stop God from his purpose? Nothing. (laughs) You know, anything that could stop God would be something he made, and he's superior over what he made. Other thoughts? I think it's pretty cool how through uh, his prophecies that it happened over several generations, you know, of where, you know, you could think of how they were just telling through generations of the prophecy of Jeremiah, and then it happened, you know, that it has great, that we have great faith and we know, and that should even increase our faith and, and knowing and you know, what he says in his word, and he will do it. Yeah, he has a good track record of reliability when he makes a commitment. Mm-hmm. He always keeps it. You know, you know people like that, where you can count on them doing what they say. You know, they always tell the truth, they always keep their commitments, then you come to trust them. Well, God has been keeping commitments, all of them, for a lot longer than any of us have ever been around. That helps. Other thoughts? All right, shift gears. Uh, Starting in 34, we are going to see um, different people and situations 